welcome to Laughing Monkey Music Show. Taylor, I'm guitarist, uh, band leader, extravagant. <laughs> Paul Crook. Paul's been in, played with many musicians. He's done stuff with for uh, with Brian, Brian May, like almost every legend you could think of. Obviously, we're going to talk about Meatloaf and, and all the years you spent with him. And uh, his, well, you're a fantastic guitar player. I want to talk about you too and your playing today. I don't want to get sidetracked also, you know, because the reason why you're, you're, you're with Meatloaf is because you're a fantastic player. You played with, you know, Anthrax and all through the years I've, I've loved your playing. So, but oh, you also you. are continuing on with, with, with the legacy of, of Meatloaf, which to me is fantastic as a fan my whole life, you know? Um, but, but what I, I want to start on is actually is in your career, as you've changed around, you've moved around with a lot of different musicians. What it seems like you've, climbed you've seen you you've always been located in the right spot with the right people do you feel like musically you've been prepared for each situation because it feels like you've always come out of the box like you you do the rock thing for brian like you've always been ready musically prepared do you think you've always been prepared for each situation coming up like done your homework first or do you feel like you've kind of fallen into some of these situations that's a great question sean um and Thank you for having me. I uh, it's funny. I, I talk about this thing uh, a lot, actually, with, uh, you know, when I when I get questions from, you know, fans who are up and coming, you know, guitar players who I meet. And uh, I I firmly believe that the universe puts things in in your path and it's all on vibration. You know, I, I don't want to get too heavy here uh, in a spiritual sense. But I believe that your vibration puts you in position. And by vibration, I mean it all starts here, right? So uh, you you imagine yourself in certain situations. And when you imagine yourself, you also feel it. You have to put emotion behind it for it to, for the universe to answer, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, um I a good a good example of this is uh, you know working you know I work with Sebastian Bach uh, who's uh, he's crazy you know <laughs> yes and um, he he's he's crazy and 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 I mean that in a loving way oh um, I, I know you I know you do you know you yeah I mean I, to, to be that good you have to be crazy and there uh, uh, his craziness totally prepared me for meatloaf because meatloaf was sebastian on steroids you know like like meatloaf when, when you think about like a rock star and i think about rock yeah. star I, meatloaf is a rock star you know uh, when i'm saying rock star i'm talking about like freddie mercury david bowie i'm talking right. about that kind of stuff you know like meatloaf I, I i saw meatloaf whether you know a listener here agrees with me or not i i, I don't care this is just how I looked at my boss. When I would look at him on stage and performing, looking at him, I saw that beast from 1977 holding that handkerchief and that white puffy shirt and that long hair. You know, I saw that guy every night on stage. You know, he was a rock star. Uh, you know, preparing, um, going back to Anthrax, thank you for mentioning that. I'm really proud of my time with Anthrax. I, uh, you know, I was a roadie for them first. So that in itself, the universe set it up right because when I stepped into the, into position to play with them, it felt very natural for me. Uh, just because 
I spent the last few years prior to that just jamming with them constantly. You know, on the road, they had a, right. uh, they always had a jam room on tour, which was great. We always had mini marshals and Charlie had a, uh, a, a small kit, you know, and, and we would set it up. Mike Tempesta and I, uh, we were roadies. This is going back to 1989. Right. Wow. And, um, you know, and we would jam like all the time. Uh, every day, it was like the it was like the highlight of the day for us. Uh, you know, uh, the band would show up about four o'clock, and we'd go in and we just we jam kiss songs. You know, we jam crazy stuff until until showtime. Yeah. So uh, when it came time to actually when it came time to actually sit in seriously, again, it felt very natural for me. I wasn't remotely nervous about it, and I believe the universe did that as well. You know, so I hope that answers your question. It does, and, and the fans are jumping around. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in Paul. I actually encourage you to go and check out other podcasts. I mean, I support all the podcasts. But your, your history, you've gone from, you know, your tech for, for Lewis or Cole. You've done fantastic things. You performed Brian May solos in front of Brian May. Oh, my God. I'm a huge yeah. Brian May fan. You can see the yeah. box behind me. Love Queen. I mean, so you've done uh, some really great things. Can I, and, uh, I'm sorry, Sean. Yeah. So, Sean, can I interject on that for one second? I want to grab that thought process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's something interesting there. There's something really good here I want to say, because I'll forget. You said I, I played Brian May solos in front of Brian May. Yeah. Uh, he actually trained me. We did one-on-one training uh, in Las Vegas <laughs> for about, I'm not exaggerating, I'm not exaggerating, for about, wow, eight to ten weeks where uh, he showed me every nuance, every little move. I, you know, I actually have uh, a sixpence here. Uh, you know, I keep it by yeah. me always because I, I use it when I when I record. You know, this is actually a Brian May played sixpence. Yep. I think I stole it from him in Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, keep it right here. Uh, but he showed me every little thing. And uh, what was amazing about Brian, what is amazing about Brian, is that I even we even talked about this when I saw him in Philadelphia last month. Uh, whenever he was around, I, I was never nervous around around him. Uh, he would come down to the theater. He'd just you know pop in, you know, to check things out as we were moving in the production. And whenever he was in the theater, I was always calm playing in front of him. He had a very relaxing vibe, mm. and I always felt strong with him. It's incredible. I don't know why that happened because I, I I would imagine you know you think I'd be terrified, but I wasn't. Well, I, I think there's Weird. two schools of thought. Well, it, it makes sense. I mean, if you're a confident mm-hmm. player, you're comfortable. You are. I think what I was thinking more of would be is, when I feel about Brian and when I've talked to other musicians and stuff, there's a certain comfortable level you get from certain people where you feel like you've done it forever and you don't feel nervous. You're like, oh my god, I've listened to you forever and I talk to you and it's like you're. It's it's totally different. But playing his solos in front of him and not knowing the nuances because I've watched guitarists go online and go like. Yeah, it's very close. Not exactly it. So playing somebody's stuff, it's almost like cooking somebody's food. I know this is you're, you're good at this. I'm going to cook this pie for you. So it's not about him beating you up. It's about like saying, here's what I think you sound like to you, to anybody. You know what I'm saying? Of course, it's Brian May. So to that point, I'm like, the nuances and he's watching you. I mean, he's really just kind of, you know, so to get that stamp of approval, that's pretty awesome. Especially as a guitar player to be like growing it up, is. Yeah. you know. Mind so you've done fantastic things. You really earned yourself um, to to where you are, and 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 twenty twenty plus years with with Meatloaf, you know, or you obviously meet. Is, is it how long did it take you to get used to calling him just meat? Hearing calling somebody just the word meat, 
I think it would take me forever. Like I've listened to it my entire life. Like one of my, my first records I got from my mom was Bad Out of Hell. She had it in her collection. I remember I was really young. I pulled it out and I was like, oh, this is the best album cover ever. What is this? And she's like, it's evil. Which she just told me the best album ever for me right there. You put it on. And at the time, to me, it was like, it was like 1950s, like sensibility, rockability to it. The great artwork. Then it had like the 70s sound to it. But also had some really great guitars that were like up and coming, like rock metal. So the album feels like, feels like it had everything and a production. Yeah. yeah. So to me, that, that had everything at the time. And um, it, it, I think it laid out a foundation. So for you to come in there and then like after, my boys, after all these years, when people say refer to it as just meat, it still throws me off. I'm like, I don't know how long it would take me to get used to calling somebody meat without <laughs> feeling comfortable with it, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I didn't call him meat. Uh, I, it was always boss. It was like, hey, boss. He, he called me. Hey, boss. That's how I answered. Uh, but I, I didn't have a problem calling him meat. It wasn't an issue. It, I just called him boss. Um, uh, John Michelli, our drummer, Randy Flowers, our guitar player, they, they called him meat. The only other person that calls him boss would, would be uh, our production manager, Joe, Le, Joe Labretti. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's funny that you say that about Bad of the Hell. I, I was the same kind of same kind of thing for me. I, it was it was about the album cover for me first. I remember holding oh, it. Going, wow, this is really cool. And it's funny that you brought up some music production. Yeah, there's definitely some Phil Spector in there, isn't there? Oh, yeah. You yeah. Know, the, the, the whole the, the whole Jersey sound, too. You know, there's a there's a Jersey sound there, too. The whole Bruce mm -hmm. Springsteen thing in there, you know, the whole boardwalk it's, thing going on there. Yeah. 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 Meet meet love Bruce Springsteen. I really respected yeah. him. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. When I heard that album, I heard so much. Actually, you know, as I said this out loud, I'm a big fan of a, like literally all types of music as, as I've had on for my guests. And it's probably one of the first albums I had that had so much on it, like obviously over the years. That's probably the first album I had that felt like it had, looking back, had that many different types of genres of music on it. I mean, it had a lot on it, you know, for sounds and stuff. And then from there, yeah. it went on. Amazing. Yeah, it did. Yeah. I don't know. I think. Yeah. Clearly, between some of the albums, I think the public had them labeled as one thing, and they wanted another thing, and they wouldn't just let them keep being a musician. I think so. Sometimes, you know, he didn't get the accolades. It took him a while. You know, Bad Eye Two came out. I was cheering for him. I was so happy when that came out. I don't. He, uh, never felt that he got the accol accolades. You know. Oh, I don't think he did. Um, he always felt. Uh, he always felt a bit abused. You know, by the system and you know by the business. You know. Uh, yeah, I uh, I got to be careful when I say things like that because he's not here to to, to clarify. Right. It. You know, I'm always really careful what I say. You know, it's just it's just me observing things. Like, you know, please let me say that. You know, from my observation, uh, Meat was never really satisfied with how he was viewed in the rock community. Oh, I agree. I think yeah. I think because that was that album. What that album did was phenomenal. Yeah, you yeah, know, cool. and then and then the age he was at, and then. And then, like I said, when Bad Two came out, but like the albums in between, he did some, he did a lot of really good music. But I think, like a lot of artists, it's like the industry wants one thing, and he had some other good stuff in between that really just didn't get the, you know, it's like that's not the same thing. We want one thing from you. Like, and he was an artist, you know, a very passionate artist, and it had to be like Bad yeah. Two, which is fantastic. Well, album, you know what? But uh, he just ignored everything between that. Does what I'm saying? To me, it was kind of a bummer as a fan. Yeah. Um... You know, yeah, uh, there's a, an important point to that, too. It, you know, be, on top of the, the cool music that was released, 
this guy was out there performing. He yeah. was touring. He was he was working six, seven days a week and he was crushing it on stage. Like the guy was an incredible performer. We know this, right? He, he ruled the yeah. stage. So he was crushing, crushing small stages like, you know, theaters and I'm sorry, excuse me, colleges, universities, yeah. uh, small venues like the Toad's Place in, in, in Connecticut or the uh, or the Stone Pony in Asbury Park, very small mm -hmm. rooms and blowing it up like he's in an arena, you know? That was one of his his incredible. Well, actually, it's to me, it's his strongest point was his live performance, and uh, he didn't consider himself a singer. He considered himself an entertainer. You know, that's how I he can see that. Himself. I mean, his songs did have a lot more mm -hmm. production in them and more theater in them sometimes than just a regular song. You know, like if you're gonna hear a yeah, song, from Hilo, you better pack. You better pack a yeah. lunch because you know you're looking at seven to fifteen minutes for a song. You know, so I'll be like, if I'm gonna hear an album, like, I'm like I just want to hear something quick. Right, I'm on the yeah. way. I yeah. can't listen to it, and the next thing you know, but then if you hear me love song, you're like, well, there goes 15 minutes. I gotta sit down and hear a whole song now because I can't stop. It's like it's like it's a commitment to, to a That's song. That's right. You know, can't have have to do a, a meatloaf song. Yeah, I when I when I first yeah when I got um I got the phone call uh, to audition from uh, Kazim Sultan called me. I love Kazim. Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you a live board next. Oh yeah. He's yeah. amazing. He's amazing. He is Chasm amazing. is incredible. I've had him on. Uh, yeah, I, I got a, I, yeah, I, I got a board mix. Yeah, I got a board mix, a CD they sent to me to, you know, to prepare. And I remember they said, uh, learn Paradise by the Dashboard Light and Bad Out of Hell. I'm like, all right. So I get the CD and I'm listening to Paradise. I'm not kidding. Paradise was, I think it was 17 minutes long on this. I'm like, oh my God. And Bad of the Hell was probably 12 minutes. You know, I'm like, oh my God, I had to learn these these arrangements, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. That's a lot. I mean, some bands and you hear like, oh, yeah. I joined this band and I had a I learned it on the way to over Argentina. <laughs> I learned 15 songs on the way over. You're like you're yeah. like, it took me so long to learn those two songs from you know, yeah. <laughs> properly. I mean and, and that that's the thing where yeah. it's it's definitely an investment and it's and it's his whole heart and soul is into it. So to see him have bad attitude and come back and then three and, and in the neighborhood and all the other stuff you guys did to see him come back and have that, like finally stay up on the, that certain level of music shelf where he was finally not, you know what I mean? Being like pop album, this album, you know, from the outside, it was great to see him finally get that. The accolades and it seems like the yeah. fans that like were our age growing up listened to him said, no, this is Milo. We love him. So when his peers from the younger root rockers were like popping in, writing songs, I mean, like your John Bon Jovi stuff. When you had people of that generation, which were the pop stars, we're kind of coming and saying, this is Meatloaf. This is a good performer, songwriter, singer. That kind of, I think, helped give him some credit where he needed it, where he should have had it with other people. You know what I'm saying? I, I, like, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah, maybe, yeah, meet, uh, uh, you know it's, yeah, meet, uh, meet love John Bon Jovi. Um, he's a hard he was worker. Always, uh, it, yeah, he was always uh, very um, respectful when, when, he, when he spoke about him, um, admired him. Thought he was a really brilliant guy, you know, and he gave us uh, a great song to record on uh, Hang Cool Teddy Bear Sessions called uh, I Saw Elvis in Vegas, you know, really cool, cool song. Um, it, yeah, he, that's what I'm saying. So, so uh, happy to see all this stuff. And I really think really what's really great is you coming in and being, being like a right hand guy. Like, really, it was a good time mm -hmm. to, to work with him. I think you really, you know. I mean, Jim may have been his songwriting, you know, they may have been amused to each other, but you really were his heart and soul, you know, to keep him oh, going, you know. Very, thank you. 
Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, we were um, we finished Hang Cool Teddy Bear, which was an incredible record. Mm -hmm. um, I hmm, I'm going to go on a limb and say, uh, you know, it's probably my second favorite record from him. Uh, we had Bad of the Hell and, I, and that Hang Cool. Was, I think that's my second favorite. And I produced two others. Right. I produced two. And I still think Hang yeah. Cool is up is better. Uh, that was a great time. Uh, the session with Rob Cavallo mm -hmm. and Doug McKean. I mean, the talent in that room was incredible. The songs were great. So, we, okay, we, we came off that tour and me kind of went, he went away mentally. And yeah. I wasn't going to allow that. I, uh, you know, I got my ass down to Austin where he lived and, and I got him off the couch. So there's no way you're sitting on your ass. We're getting back to work. You know, and and I pushed him and, and I showed him. I said, look, we can get this done. Everything at that time was very budget oriented. And, you know, um, I said, look, I can get this record done for this amount of money. And he's like, really? I said, yeah. You know, and then we went in, you know, that's how we did it. And then we went into Braver Than We Are after that. You know, it was just, you know, I felt it important to keep him busy. You know, so thank you for noticing that. Well, I, I think it's important. You're welcome. I, I mean, I like, I like the albums that you guys have all done. Too. I mean, thank you. Hell, you came. I almost can't even count that as being my favorite album because it's just that's just like awesome. It's like it's so good. You can't even count that as a, as a big, you know, with other albums. Sure. It's so good. Like the, it, the way it broke down songwriting, it was record breaking away like a Zeppelin or like, you know, I mean, it was just a first of something that was so. But I think the last, I think for me, like really from one, from Bad Out of Hell 2 on, like to the on, he was really firing on all cylinders to do each, each album better. And I think for you, you, like he's the talent and the raw creativity, and but he's also had years of being physically and mentally burnt out from from prior exposure to the music industry. You know what I mean? That raw talent, whereas you kind of came in, you know, a different perspective. You had the same musical talent, so you kind of put the foundation, but also kind of helped guide all that raw talent. So together, you know, you kept that focus. You know what I mean? But you were also had to thank you to 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 keep it together with him. If you if you weren't talented yourself, you would not would have been like you know. Two talented people going everywhere. You also had your your drive. I think helped propel him. You know, um, which. Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you. There's a, there's a good point there. Meet good point. Uh, meet uh, the number one uh, thing that would uh, get you fired: <laughs> complacency. He hate he hated complacency. And I, I believe the reason why me and I got along so well is because of the work ethic that my father instilled in me. I, I'm never not working. I'm always working. I work on Christmas Day. You know, uh, I, I just can't help myself. You know, I uh, and, and, and me appreciated that. You know, he would he would call me for something and I'd get right on it. I didn't wait. You know, I stopped whatever I was doing. If he asked for something, I, I'd, I'd get it done that day. Yeah. You know, things like that, you know. And in the studio, and in the studio, you know, I got to know him so well uh, that he felt very safe. You know, there was a very, um, that's the only word I can use, a very safe room, meet and I. When we were in a room together, uh, he knew uh, I was going to push him as far as I could push him because I knew him so well and nothing would leave the room until we felt it was great. Both of us. Now, whether the rest of the world felt it was great, that didn't matter. 
right. is what we felt was great, what we were getting. And, well, and, and it just worked, you know? Well, that's the producer side of you. I mean, and you're also, it's none of days to talk about everything you do. Your production is fantastic also. I really enjoy it. I would just yeah. go for recording. So I also big fan of production. Oh, cool. But, but, but um, I think that's one of the downsides a lot of bands don't do. Like you'll have two artists, you'll have, uh, and I'm not saying it's Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, but you have two artists that write and they go against you, they go against each other to write songs. But sometimes you talk to an artist, and I've done this before, where there's not a trust or they record separately. Some of the best stuff you get is if you record somebody, even if you push them back and forth, you got to have that trust to have the artist push out even further. Very rarely is somebody That's not right. trusting you. That's right. You're going to go past that peak because they don't want to look bad if they don't have that trust. They're going to stay safe, even though what they're safe is exceptional. Everyone else in the world thinks it's exceptional. In the studio, you know there may be more, but if they're not going to push it, because who wants to feel you know, vulnerable? Or, or sound bad that's right at that level when everybody's looking at you it's even worse there's more pressure that's right that's it's only right. harder when you get more successful you know yeah that's right i have a uh, i have a funny uh story on on the same uh, topic uh, brian may told me this great story yeah. uh uh they were mixing we are the champions mm -hmm. you know final stages you know and at that time you know consoles didn't have automation right so you had you had eight to ten hands on the console at any one time moving and if somebody messed up, you had to drop the mix again, right? You understand? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, okay. So we are the champions. Uh, Freddie and Brian were, you know, moving faders. And Brian was on guitars. Freddie was on vocals. And they were both annoying each other because Freddie's going to Brian. The guitars aren't loud enough. And Brian's going, well, Freddie, it's, it's stepping on the vocal. You know, and there were some words back and forth. So they decided to switch positions. Now, <laughs> Brian's on vocals and Freddie's on guitar. So the mix that you're hearing on News of the World is Freddie pushing guitars and Brian pushing vocals. <laughs> that's a cool story. Yeah. That's really kind of refreshing because it gives you perspective. Even at the yeah. time you don't get it, but afterwards you step back, you're like, yeah. I get it. Yeah. I learned, I learned yeah. production with the time when you were still learning how to do splicing and punch-ins. So yeah, it, <laughs> there was, it was a different world, but I think, and then that's as a side story. We go for hours on that. That yeah. kind of production mind as a musician coming in, it's a shame a lot of those musicians are aging out now because just the time period. There was a skill set that was left there that is kind of carried over, even down to digital. That's oh still my made, god, yes. That is, but but that 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 um, it's almost like school that you went to of learning that way has made them such better musicians. Like you hear, like so and so can come in and just shoot it out now because they learned their trade of the punch in, punch out. Like you had to get it right. You had to be that work. You didn't have all these effects and stuff, so you kind of came in more prepared. You knew yourself. You've already mm -hmm. put the, the effort in, the homework. Yeah. You know. And nowadays, I don't think I don't hear producers getting the same kind of thing because they know, you know. Yeah, you know, you even even understanding. Songs. Yeah, I mean, even understanding something so basic as you know tape saturation, and being mm -hmm. being careful with it, understanding what needs to be saturated and what does not. You know, input level gain staging, just those things. You know, don't exist anymore. No. You know, yeah, it's, it's it's a different world, and it, and it makes the album sound different. And I think, yeah. Sometimes I think it changes the song dynamic because there's so much more you can do. Mm. I think it puts people more create the creativity changed a little bit, and that's why I think a lot of the older mm. artists, you, know, you could say legacy, and I mean legacy in a good way. Sure, have have an extra um, sprinkle of that magic songwriting still that maybe not as many people are, are getting because they're not experiencing that same kind of production. Maybe. Well, you, you know, know what? Uh, let, let me. You know, that, that was obviously I'm generalizing, but I'm and that's my right opinion. Now, that's just my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Right now we have um we we have like David Grohl right who yep 
who definitely understands tape saturation. Oh, oh yeah. You know, I, I, I can't think of a more honest guy right now off the top of my head, right? Or an honest band like the Foo no, Fighters. I, I they, use him as an example all the time, too, because he does so much. Yeah. He's such an easy example yeah. to use. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Foo Fighters, they, they do it right. You know, they, they, they're using tape machines and they're not trying to get things perfect. They're going for vibe. Oh, yeah. And Mendable. you try new things. And, but you try new things yeah. and you have a good reputation. And whether you, and even if you don't yeah. like them or not, I enjoy them. But I mean, but even if you don't like the kind of music, you still have to respect the work ethic, the kindness, the openness. He'll play with any type of music. He loves those types of music. I was just watching the movie yeah. and laughing watching this movie. It's sad to watch it with Taylor. I was, I was dreading watching it to see it. I couldn't imagine. But but the the amount of musicality that, and, and that effort he puts into everything he does. He's like, you know, I did, I did an album with this producer. Totally not a commercial rock producer. The album probably didn't do as well. But man, that's what he had to imagine in his mind and he wanted to do it. That's music. That's why you do it. Yeah. That's why you're working on Christmas Day because you have a song in your head. You have this pull. Yeah. It's not about work. It's about, yeah. I can't not do it. It's just driving me, you know? Yeah. And and, and I think that's yeah. the yeah. thing that you've carried over. And, and that's, and I want people to know to check out because I was even 100% aware of what was going on after Meat had passed in, in this band that you know you guys have, Neverland Express, right? Um, how fantastic you guys are. Like, it's not a tribute. It's not just, it's this band. Thank you. And you guys brought in another yeah. singer. And you can probably expand on it more. Another singer. And, and one piece before I have you speak on it is the danger of having another singer is that either you, if you replicate it too much, you become a cover band, sort of. But if you don't do it, the artist has their own style and it takes it over to a way where it's like, like when Paul Rogers did a thing with Queen, it worked because they were both established. But then when Queen had Adam come in, that was Adam's actual style. And so he could still be Adam Lambert to sing with Queen. So it fit differently, but almost felt better in a way for the songs to be honored. It is better. No, right, it, it, no, it, it, it's right totally better. Right, right. But Paul Rogers is still a great singer. Yeah. And it was great the way he did it, but it wasn't the same. Yeah. But Ad, but Adam stayed yeah. who he was. Adam's not not that, that that singer. That is who he is. And when he ever goes solo to solo stuff, it's going to be like that. That's his voice. That's who he is. So to that point, you guys had to find a singer, and Meat was still around and alive. And just you know, you can explain to why that was an interesting piece to bring in. How how do you fill that spot? You know what I mean? So it fits right. So maybe at this point, yeah. You thank you. It's a great question. Yeah, a great question. Um, I don't know how how much detail you want to get on get in on this. Uh, Whatever you we were, um, right. This is like June. Okay, this is like June 2016, right? And we're yeah. in Edmonton. Meat passes out on stage. Um, we we had the whole Braver Than We Are tour in front of us starting in August in 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 Europe. Uh, long story short, that tour got canceled. Meat never came back on stage. Uh, now we're in May 2017. And, you know, me being the music director, you know, kind of, you know, holding the reins here for the boss, you know, I'm getting panic phone calls from the band, you know, you yeah. know we need to work. So, okay, I, I, uh, I, I call the boss, I have this idea, you know what, I'm going to get the band on the road, I'm going to get somebody else to sing it. And this way we stay oiled, you know, the, the Neverland Express stays moving. No, I, I can't believe anyone's done that before, though. I can't think of other bands doing that before. That's yeah. a great idea. Like. Yeah, so I called, hey, boss, I got this idea. Look, we're losing the band. Let me get the guys on the road. I'm going to get somebody in front, and we'll keep it oiled. We'll keep it oiled, like I said, so that when you're ready to come back, you just step in. And I remember he was quiet. I mean, dead silent for 
probably 15 seconds, which is an eternity on the phone. And uh, and then he just says, okay, like that. And he goes, well, who are you going to get to sing? I said, I, can I curse here? Yeah. You, you're right. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I go, I have no fuck. Yeah, I, I go, I have no fucking idea. He goes, hmm. Yeah. So even at that time, I didn't know. It was just I wanted to let me know what I was thinking. Right. And I should say, I be, before calling me, I called management. I called Tom Consolo. I called Terry Doty. I called his personal manager and his business manager. And I told him what I wanted to do. And both of them were like, well, good luck, Paul. You know, like <laughs> like sarcastically, just because, you know, meat is very alpha male, you know. But he understood the importance of it, uh, thankfully. So um, yeah. he was there the whole way, the entire way. You know, I was throwing singers at him. I'm not going to say other ideas I had. I don't want to do that. No. But we finally, serendip serendipity, you know, found Caleb Johnson. It was an amazing, amazing yeah, time. Yeah, great. And yeah, and when, when I told Meat, Meat, Meat was like, great, you know, because Meat knew who he was from American Idol. Mm -hmm. And uh, even when, when Caleb won American Idol, there were there were comparisons to Meatloaf and Meat even chimed in when he when he won, you know. Mm -hmm. And like you said, when, when Caleb came in, it was important that we we from right up in the onset, I never wanted to find a Meatloaf impersonator. I didn't want to go there. I needed to find that. somebody. Yeah, I needed to find somebody who had the range and who had the vibe. You know, who could take on that enormous sound, you know? Right. And that was the only that's all I cared about. And uh, you know, that was it was challenging, you know, and we got very lucky. Very lucky. Well, so and then uh, as we're moving, I remember yeah. we started, we uh started the we, we came out of the gates with playing Bad of the Hell from you know, from it how the the whole way how it runs. And it wasn't working. You know, so I remember calling him. John Michelli and I were at the airport in St. Louis after a gig. And I said, hey, boss, you know, got him on the phone. We're having trouble with the set list. He's like, well, what are you doing? I said, well, we're, we're doing Bad of the Hell in its entirety. You can start to finish. He goes, you can't do that. <laughs> I was like, because it doesn't work. And I said, obviously. He goes, what do we do? So for, for the longest time, the set list that we had, he built for us. That's how we were performing it. We've kind of moved away from it now. Like recently, we added some Rocky Horror elements, which work really well. I'll bet. You know, and now and now venues are asking for, you know, the, the common thing to do now is they want to see two sets with an intermission, but to break things up. So the set list now is is altered from what Meat first gave us. But he was he was that involved with the whole process. So I, that gives me two questions. Um, and actually, the third one. So let me just yeah. say them first. So the first thing is, and I want to you answer this last. Is I know you said Meat had passed out on stage. I heard you said before that Meatloaf used to pass out all the time. On stage, if you could kind of give me a little more information, yeah, every night. I, I'm kind of curious every about night. that. But but I want to say one yeah. thing. I don't think that the, the you talk to management and they kind of like, yeah, 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 good thing. I do think, and not knowing me, but not knowing anybody, but knowing you guys, you and me, well, and and any other musicians speak a different language. Musicians to musicians, or people, a business guy to a, to a, a music person, are going to have different things and different history. You and me coming in, talk music. It wasn't about anything else for the most part. So them saying good luck is like we. Well, I'm, the odds were already better for you because you spoke with them. You had a different relationship with them, so it wasn't like so out there. You you had he you had his ear. You know what I'm saying? Like musically with respect, yeah. not like you're saying yeah. like, "Hey, I think you should buy some stock." He'd be like, "Get out of here!" <laughs> I got people for yeah. that. But you're like musically. Yeah, we have a production. We have business. We have rules. I want to keep these guys going. You want you know how hard it is to bring in people that can do a performance well, an intricate work, 
Same thing like with the Zappa show. You can't let people go idle. They got bills. But at the same time, you've got your struggles and we want to be ready to switch it out. I mean, that is the perfect plan. So that's great. That, Thank you so much for saying that. That's yeah. a different language now, you guys look, are speaking. That's that great. Yeah. 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 Now, I was very involved in business with Meat Meatloaf. Um, it, it, this is a, a great thing. Uh, Meat was my greatest mentor besides my father in my life. Um, mm -hmm. Brian May, too, is an, an, still is an incredible mentor with me. I, I, run, I run everything by Brian constantly. Do you? And he lets me know when I suck, which I, re which I really love. And Meat was the same way. Now, the things that Meat Love did for me, business-wise, he opened up the touring books to me. I saw all the expenses, you know, because we were, we were building tours together. When I, I came yeah. on as music director, he then brought me in on production. You know, we were, he'd send me out. I was hiring the road crew, you know, mm -hmm. um, things like that. You know, now when I say hiring the road crew, obviously right. the business management does that. No, I know, but I'm saying but he, had me, he had me fishing out, you know, we, finding. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, right. totally. Yes. But I, I wanted to let you know how how much he taught me. So by this time, by the time we had this idea to go out as a Neverland Express, I was a I was already very vested uh, in very knowledgeable of how Meatloaf ran business. So. It was, I ran, started things the exact same way Meatloaf did. We brought on Meat's business manager to look over things. I wanted Meatloaf to see every penny that came in. And he did. He was aware of everything that was going on. Just wanted to, wanted to let you know that. Yeah. The other thing that was fantastic, and, and you were going to share, um, the, the other, I had three questions. One of them was, so when you first started doing this without, um, like he knew who you were going to sing, but you were doing a, a set list without him knowing at first, like he wasn't, really involved in that part until yeah I, it was it, the only way i could say that was uh, i didn't know how far to bother him with things you know so i uh you know one once i got the permission and and once i got the okay on on things you know the you know things moving getting the wheels going i i would i'd only touch him here or there with with thought process you know i didn't want to bother him um Obviously, we we gave him notification on every show book, so he he knew what was happening on on that end. But on the creative end, I was I was a, a little gun shy to to you know yeah. approach him with. Well, things. I understand uh, that. I'm just until, surprised he wasn't again. Like, was, hey. was, that was the turning point. Yeah, I was surprised he was like, "Hey, send me yeah, a that was the turning video of that. I want to see what's going on." Uh, well, you no, I mean? no, uh, yeah, well, no, well, he saw he saw videos online. Okay. Uh, but but also but but we also we re-recorded Bad Out of Hell in its entirety, and we we sent him all that obviously, and he gave us his incredibly strong critiques on things, which was great, <laughs> you know, yeah. So he he saw all that stuff, yes, you know. But as far as um, live stage create creativity, the turning point was when John and I called him about the set list, and then at that point, I I would just say, hey man, you know, this is working, that's not working, you know, things like that, and he was. Always open to it. Okay, I mean that's important because I mean I would be maybe it's just my nature. I'm like when I, at that point now I'm looking at what I, what I think meat view would be looking at it with, through my eyes. I'd be like I'd want to know because my name's on it more or less, and yeah. it's gonna be representing yeah. me. I'd want to know exactly what it looks like, even if I'm at home and not feeling yeah. good. I'm still thinking, and I can watch TV and I got the internet. And I got all this technology. I can still be involved. You know, yeah, producer. So well, to me, yeah, the fact you know, he gave well, you that we, much we is, is flattering. 
I'm sorry. It's flattering. Yes, but we, we would actually call him from the dressing room. Okay. Yeah, we would call him from the dressing room. Um, it would be on tour, you know, for since day one working with Meatloaf. We had a thing called the kill, right? Whereas uh, right before we went on stage, the band would get together and we would do this routine, you know, what are we going to do? Kill, you know, and we'd put our hands in the middle, that kind of thing. So we would call him before the shows and we would do a kill over the phone too. Mm -hmm. um, a, a lot of times he wouldn't answer, you know, but I always called him. And a few times we got successful with the kill, you know, he'd do it with us, you know. So, you know, I always tried to involve him, you know, as much as possible in, in that in that, in that aspect. I well, it's clearly very important. And obviously he wasn't always involved because obviously he was probably dealing with his own stuff, as we as humans do in our mortality. So the fact that you kept um, faithful and on track allowed him to probably allowed him the extra um, areas to do his own stuff and not worry about, oh, God, what's going on with my career, this or that. I got Paul. I got. I got. A, I got a solid man steering the ship, the meatloaf ship. You know what I mean? I can kind of breathe and Thank worry you. about myself. I think. I think that was probably. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I can only imagine that's got to be what it was going Thank through because I know he had some health issues. And after he fought so long to get back up from, you know, he started off at the top. Well, it was at the top. You know, but the album, first one came out. The first one came out. Everyone was all eyes on him, and then he got kind of knocked down. So to get back up again. You don't have to worry about that struggle. Like at least he can be like, "All right, <laughs> I can take my eyes yeah. off of this and go here because I'm not going to go off course again." You know, he had a clause yeah. way yeah. up. So that's important, you know. And I think it's also important the fact you get the band going because that's a lot of money for a lot of homes and people and lives. It's not just about a sound. That's that's like a yeah, that's, right. that's what we're saying about. But John Bon Jovi does that. Like Bon Jovi's a business, and they can say, "Well, the vocals were different, or this tour was different. Why was he doing that?" Well, I can tell you from the outside, as a, as a person, he committed certain amounts of things to concerts, and everybody's finances depended on that. So if he took time off because he could afford it, mm. depending on what people were saying about his voice or whatever, I'm not going there. He, I think, personally, he had the responsibility of taking care of all these families first. That's who I think his head fit with that first, despite everybody jumping on him, because there is a business and there's other people that work for you. You know, your roadies and your this and that. Yeah. Everyone's got to pay the bills. And and by you doing this, you're you exactly kept right. people working. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Is, that, that's what this is. It's exactly business. right. The business. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Meat Meat wanted the Neverland Express to keep working. He said those words exactly. You know, yeah. we are we're out here doing it because that's what Meat said we should do. And we're we're grateful to have, to have Caleb Johnson, who who is approaching the gig as Caleb Johnson. He's not trying to be meatloaf. We're we're just incredibly fortunate that the guy has a huge voice and can handle this material. Mm -hmm. And he's a he's a physical, he's a physical, there's a visual about him. It's a larger than life thing that just works, you know. To have somebody on stage really skinny, I don't know if that would work, you know. Um I, I don't know. I haven't seen it, you know. Hmm. I, I think there are on the person. I think I do this who are skinny. I think this is yeah. funny because you, you, yeah. you think of a lot, a lot of small singers that have a really loud, like a Bruce Dickinson mm. and Ryan Gipsy, or like loud. You can say, well, <laughs> because their, their torsos are small. Like you could go to all kinds of crazy theories. But sometimes, like, you know somebody and you meet them, and it's like, I always, yeah. I always thought they were bigger. So I always think, like, the personality, like, <laughs> is who the singer, you need a big personality who can put, could fill the fluffy, ruffly shirts and put the bravado in there. Because you got to yeah. deliver it. You, you can't yeah. be, you can't not partially do that you cannot sing dress like that 
with those songs yeah. and people go that looks cool because <laughs> that's not like you would not walk around looking yeah. going that guy looks cool like he did it in a way you're like that looks cool i could never do it no yeah. one else could do it and i, I think know. that takes so like when you meet people and you think you know i thought you were much taller because that's what the person i knew people like that my, my <laughs> father-in-law you know, before we passed i'm like i always imagine him way bigger and i see a picture i'm like i forget that he was shorter than me because to me he was a giant you know and i think you need a giant personality to to, to project that it doesn't have to be physically but at yeah. least like yeah like emotionally or vocally for that position maybe yeah and also you also get you also get people like you don't realize how tall they are until you need them oh my god i, yeah. I remember uh like anthrax anthrax we did uh we performed on the conan o'brien show like 1995 oh. uh and uh <laughs> i couldn't believe oh, wow. how tall conan was yeah <laughs> was like, he's like he's like close to seven feet almost right i'm exaggerating what is he like six no, he, eight i don't know yes he's, he's really tall like, you see <laughs> yeah he is a big dude but you don't yeah. think about that as as far as yeah. you know yeah. side by sides i'm sure next to you you know yeah scott and stuff and, you know the size of the band you know, a lot of smaller guys in Anthrax, and you got Conan, and it probably just seemed like some kind of the dynamic is <laughs> bigger, right? Um, but the guys in Anthrax, yeah, also, yeah, that seems like he's like another 30 yeah. feet tall, but you know, size wise, he's yeah. not a monster, but his personality and his yeah. playing, you know, yeah. he's a giant, yeah. And 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 those are all things of, yeah. of um, compliments. Scott Ian. compliments, compliments is what that is. Scott you know? Ian is uh, Scott Ian is unbelievable, mm -hmm. uh. It's, uh, talk about it. Talk, talk about a talent, you know, and and a guy that is in control of his universe, you know, uh, a thrash metal thing. You know, he's wow, that guy's amazing. You know, well, the Anthrax band in general, uh, they they've always amazed me. You know, that yeah. uh, early on, even before I started working with them, I saw them at this place called Union Jack in South River, New Jersey, 1984. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, they were unbelievable. And it would thrash was still very, very young at that time. You know, I, I went into the venue not really knowing what, what I was going to hear. You know, uh, I used to go to this place called Rock and Roll. Um, it's the uh, uh, flea market. And it was yeah. Route 18 is a place where, where John Zazula had. Yeah. He had all these great imports. It's called Rock and Roll Heaven. We used to go there on Saturdays, you know, and, and, and he introduced us to like um, Venom and all these really cool metal bands from Europe. And he was the one that introduced us to Anthrax. When I say us, I mean like my brother and, and my friends. Right. And they had the show at Union Jack. I went down and saw him, and it was the craziest thing I ever saw. I never heard a drummer like that up until that time, you know? Uh, Anthrax really had something going on, you know? And I remember then seeing them at the Capitol Theater on Among the Living. And I remember thinking, wow, these guys are going to pop. You saw it, they had Joey Belladonna up there, right? And it was like it was like it was like shaking. It was about to blow up. You, you knew it was happening, and then boom! You know, there it went. You know, amazing. Well, then that's the thing. It's really crazy. And then, like finding out that Charlie writes a lot of the songs, and that goes back to drummers playing guitar, and then um, Dave Grohl playing guitar, and always playing with that rhythm. And then you go back, you listen to the songs, you talk about the rhythm, with Charlie. You know, Dave, and you listen to Foo Fighters and Anthrax, you go, I get it. And I talk to a lot of people, even if they're not drummers now, they go, you know what? Yeah. I play the guitar like I play, like, like a drummer, even though I don't even play drums. Like a lot of people approach it like that as a guitar player, which is interesting. I never really thought about it. I was yeah, melody, okay. So, yeah. 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 Now, look, yeah. Yeah. Charlie, Charlie writes all of the music, not some of it. Yeah. Okay. Everything that you're familiar with with Anthrax, Charlie yeah. wrote. 
Scott, uh, Scott writes the lyrics. Uh, they, okay. that's that's how it started. I should say, okay. all, yeah, all I'm the, not behind the doors, I never like being 100%. You know what I mean? With anything, so I never know what the artist behind the doors. So I never like to be a hundred percent. Yeah, saying, it, yeah. You know, I've yeah. learned. Now to look, be careful. Now, 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 <laughs> yeah. Now, I mean, I, I'm not a part of the writing process now. Obviously, I never was a part of the writing process. I was, I was around it, but it was always Charlie in control musically. Now, uh, I haven't been in the studio with them in in years, right. but I know that now Frankie's involved heavily on song arrangements and, and riff ideas. Uh, and I believe he's but, in on, on, on lyric as well. But, he's but the, the Anthrax sound. bass playing now too, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah I mean, he's yeah. Now the Anthrax, yes. Yeah. Now look, now Anthrax too, the thing about Anthrax that I always admired was their, their live performance. I always felt that they had the most energy out of all the thrash bands. There was something up there that they just, they just commanded the stage. Like I, I would, um, I think it'd be really cool to see Anthrax opening up, opening for Metallica on that stadium tour. I would love to see Frankie Bello and Scott up there on that huge stage in that stadium. I, I could imagine sense. it being really badass. Yeah, because those guys are animals on stage. The, the other guys in Thrash, I'm not knocking anybody. Please, I'm not knocking anybody. No, no. You got like you guys like like Kerry King, Kerry King or or Tom Araya, who are unbelievable. Right. But these guys aren't aren't physical moving entities right. on stage. They they plant and they crush. They're amazing. You got a guy like Frankie Bello, who's an animal physically. Boom. He's exploding. I, I can't imagine him on that Metallica stage. I, wait, well, I, I hope I, I hope to see that. You know what it is, 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 well, as long as Charlie's playing with Pantera, nobody's doing anything. But I, I think that. Um, they have they, they were like an arena rock band with a thrash sound. Because a lot oh, of thrash Pantera's bands move around like that. No, oh, I'm saying look, a lot. A lot of bands so move around. Besides Pantera and Anthrax, a lot of the bands like Megadeth, Metallica, Slayer, they kind of stood in one spot. Fantastic albums, big fan. I've seen them all. You know, with all the concerts. But I'm saying, but of the bands that move around, it was really Pantera, you know, Anthrax. I'm sure people chime in, whatever. But I'm saying off the top of my head, of there's a reason why they even become even more beloved to some people because yeah. visually. You can feel the energy when they're running around. It's, it's like an extra layer to this, the, the you know, of, of the enjoyment. Uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I remember uh, the first time I saw Pantera live, uh, early '90s, and I remember feeling like being taken aback. I, I felt like, I hope I don't get crushed here. I felt like I was almost seeing Van Halen. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it was just like because Dimebag had this incredible personality, and visually he was um, stunning to me, and and how he commanded uh, the stage and 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 what, uh, I'm talking about the vibe oh. of the band, right? Even oh, yeah. even like Rex, you know, how Rex would just kind of he would just kind of kind of stalk and and kind of glue himself to Vinny. Mm -hmm. who was also amazing, right? With these incredible drum sounds, right? But then you had Phil up front who to me is incredible he's an incredible front man yeah uh they I, I yeah i mean we know pantera is amazing they were amazing and I, i'm so grateful that we when i say we i mean anthrax we toured with them a lot i remember going to mexico playing monterey mexico with them and it was it was off the hook how great they were what was great about them i tell you i love the fact the way the rhythm section took over and loud space for the guitar solo because in the albums obviously there's so much guitar layering 
how they worked well, just holding a spot for him, and he could do the solo with the with the percussion. Like their solo set, when he did a solo and the the drums and bass sounded so different than any other band. It was so special the way they held the bottom end for him, where he could just go anywhere. You know what I mean? Like they were just well, ready yeah. to go with them. Yeah, that a was lot of that tight. Yes, a lot of that had to do with a lot of that had to do with the guitar sound. Yeah, uh, you know, you had you had Vinny. You had Vinny kind of, you know, engineering the records, right? And, you know, and he and Dime, you know, developing his, their sound together, right? You know, because mm -hmm. you had Dime, Dime's sound was very scooped, right? It had no mid-range, which left a lot of room for snare drum. You know, so Vinny had this beautiful, like, fat snare, you know? It's kind of like like the Led Zeppelin thing, you know? The reason why Bonham's sound was so huge is because Jimmy Page's sound was so small. You know, it left room for that huge drum sound. So that that Pantera production is just this how the instruments were EQ'd. It was just this beautiful thing that Vinny just had his his ears are great. He, yeah, he was a good producer. I, I think that that's I don't think that's funny because we already talked about that. The production and the sound and allowing room for your, for each instrument and being generous enough yes. to give and take yeah. on the spot of it allows uh, allowed them to be even sound even di different but cool. But rise above because they had their own sound, but they also gave room. They weren't like, I should be in this frequency. I should be here. Everybody had their spot and it worked, you know, and and they didn't. That's one thing. That's they right. You know, and also. Was. Yeah. And also they, they had they had Terry Dayton in the corner too, an incredibly talented guy. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and um, they had Sterling Winfield, you know, an engineer, you know, so they yep. had a really strong team around them. So, so you have you have a. You have a, a producer in the room who who is glued to your vibe, right? Because Terry's amazing. And then you have yep. this, you know, the drummer. I, I mean, you, you can go on a lot. We can, we can go on and on about that. I know we can do it. It was it was the perfect. Not only were they the four di most different guys, yeah. but also musically um, speaking well together. They had the perfect talent around them that understood them and allowed them. Yeah. And that's why you yes. had the four, five, six albums that you couldn't touch that run. Yeah you know yeah. magical and but the energy was the same and I go back to anthrax it was the same thing with those guys they kind of knew their spots and and even you know from bass to vocals like everybody as musicians grew and you could see them grow on the albums you know yeah. it was just like yeah all the way through each album got better and better you know and then even though it didn't work yeah. vocally i was still a fan with john and then when oh. john left I, i'm still right and then i'm still a fan of john and I'm still a fan of you know, Anthrax with Joey. So, like, to me, it was just like, all right, trading out, high five. No, not really a high five, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm fine with it. You know, it's amazing. Are. Yeah, you know what's amazing to me? Like, like Joey Belladonna, the, the guys are still playing the songs in the original case. And Joey's crushing it live. Crushing it. I, uh, you know, John Bush, to me, sounds better than he's ever had. Yeah. I recently heard uh, some some stuff from John, you know, recently. Uh, recently over redundant there john is crushing it you know yeah but i wanted to go back on on uh, some studio stuff i remember uh talking about pantera and, and engineering and you know and charlie benante you know when uh we did a uh, volume eight i engineered that and co-produced that record we we brought in uh dime bag and and phil's talents for that record i remember we're on the uh pantera tour and uh, I managed to slip a uh, a Mackie console and an ADAT into the bus into the into the bay of the tour bus, 
so that when we got on the road, I, I set up a studio in, in Phil's dressing room because I wanted them <laughs> to do some vocal tracks. And uh, wow, man, it was incredible. I okay, so imagine this. It's probably one in the afternoon. You know, you know, a couple a couple days prior. Hey, Phil, so we got we got a couple song ideas. I want to know if you want to do this. Yeah, yeah, sure. Phil's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Just put it in my dressing room. All right. So a couple days later, I set it up one morning. I don't know. Phil comes comes in at like one in the afternoon. He's in his underwear. You know, probably some kind of death metal shirt. You know, doom metal shirt. But he's definitely in boxers, right? No yeah. shoes. And uh, I gave him a fifty-seven SM fifty-seven. The workhorse. And we just turned up the monitors in the in the in the dressing room. No isolation. So if you go to volume eight, you listen to you know Phil's parts. There's no isolation. Fifty-seven in the room, cranked. And he screams his ass off, and it was, it was shuddering, how powerful it was. I remember because it was John Bush and I in the room, and I remember John yeah. going like, "Holy shit!" After the first take, uh, mind blowing, you know. And I remember uh, uh, Dimebags submitting solos. I have no problem saying this. Uh, I believe it was uh, Inside Out <laughs> song. And uh, Dimebag submitted the solo, and Charlie didn't like it. Charlie went back to Dimebag and said, "No, man, it's not right." And Dimebag, what do you mean it's not right? You know, <laughs> and Charlie's like, "You can do better." No, it's what true story. That's and, and awesome. Balls, right? And, and Charlie's like, "No, you can do better. You can do better." And I was like, "Right on, Charlie." And he, and he did. He pushed. He pushed Dimebag, and we got a great solo out of it. That's another reason why Meatloaf and I got along because I never had a problem saying no to him. Ever. What are the plans? Because you got some tours. It's already set up on the website. You guys, you guys redid the Bad Out of Hell. It's fantastic. It's a fun, it's a fun interpretation because it's clearly very similar to it. It just feels like it has a, a little fresh energy because it's a, a little different voice. You know I mean it feels like a younger version? It's it's fun. Well, I like it. The album. Thank so you. Well, you know what we well. did for that. What you're hearing, yeah. What you're hearing on Paradise Found is. Uh, the actual live arrangements, you know, these are the, okay. this is how we did them live. This is, this is how Meatloaf coached us. And this, these are actually our arrangements that we developed with him, you know, uh, which is why it's not a tribute. You, you, you can't tribute yourself. Okay. Right. Uh, we have, we have Meatloaf DNA in us. Every step of our, every step of the way is Meatloaf's DNA, you know? No, and well, that's the thing. I've said this, I think I, it's my, my thing lately is like, you can't, the Queen can't do, you can't copy Freddie Mercury. There's only one Freddie Mercury. You can't copy Meatloaf. There's only one. There's a reason why there's only one everything. So why be that? You can't do, you're never going to do better than Meatloaf on a Meatloaf song because that's the originator. You can't. So you want to do your best and it has to sound good. And and it no, does sound good. I really enjoyed it. I listened to the whole album. I've listened to it like twice already since I've come across you. it. And, it, I, and you're welcome. I, have enjoy, I really enjoy it. And I'll put the link on for everybody to the website. Either whether you're streaming it or listening Thank to you. um Thank you. whatever. Click on it, go listen to the whole album. It's fun. And I guess as I'm leading to is you have a couple Thank dates you. set up for next year. You're welcome. It's on, on the road. Is it gonna fill in some of the dates? Because you have like a handful, but it's throughout the year. Is that now? Yeah. Yeah. To, yeah, our, yeah. Well, our our agent, uh Day After Day Productions, they um recently attended the uh, expo in, in Nashville, which is where you, you present your talent and, and all the 
promoters from the country or actually around the world show go there to, to see what they, they can book. I'm talking about casinos, yeah. fairs, and corporates, yeah. those kinds of things, which is kind of like where we live, right? So uh, as we speak, day after day is assembling all of that and presenting us for shows every week. We have we have a, a lot of offers, but we have to make them work logistically, budget wise. You yeah. know, so I, I I can't just go out. I can't go out on one day a weekend. Usually, you know, uh, sometimes we can. The money is there. We can do that. You need two or three shows in a, in a you know a week to make it work. You know, because we're, we're doing what you call weekend warriors. Warriors, you yep. go out. Excuse me. We do what you call weekend warriors. You leave on a Thursday, come back on a Sunday, that kind of thing. With the, but we have um, we have our UK tour books. Yeah, yeah, we have our UK tour book for September twenty twenty four. We have uh, eight shows. We have a couple more shows that we're going to announce very shortly that are going to tack on at the back end of that, which we're excited yeah. about. Uh, and then we have uh, really awesome talks elsewhere around the world. I don't want to say right now, but that looks really great. Uh, we have, again, we have shows coming in constantly in the States and we'll be updating that. Uh, hopefully January, we'll have some really good information when you can find that on celebrating meatloaf.com. How about uh, guitar questions? Cause I know the guitar pretty well. Well, I know he was big on his sound and I know he built a lot of it. And I know his father was good with coming to pick and the coin. They kind of all do that together. Had he through the years changed any kind of, obviously he was always doing the coin have you tried changing it up for other different sounds you know what i'm saying had he said you know what this works for me i'm gonna try something different now just go back to it and they can say nope nothing's as good to go back to it or is he had a like once he had the sound he's like i'm good because you know guitarist you tone chase but yeah no that that's a great question that's a great question uh brian unlike say edward van halen is not a tone chaser Okay. Like Edward was always always updating, updating, updating. Oh, yeah, like yeah, I am yeah. too. I'm I'm a tone chaser. Alex Lifeson is a tone chaser. Right? Uh Nuno Betancourt's not a tone chaser. Yep. Right? That guy has a marshal, he cranks the bass, and he has a rat pedal, and he's done. Right? Right? Brian May, the only thing he's changed is are are his like what he puts in front as far as delays. In the early days, um, he had a rolling tape echo and the guy was so smart, you know, that's the, the, the tape, right? Yeah. He was so smart that he, he modified it by extending the wheels to go further to get a longer delay time just by cutting it apart. Like he took like a, you know, a knife to it, you know, a saw, whatever, you know, extended the tapes out. And that's how he got the Brighton rock, you know, 900 millisecond time, you know, wow. now, obviously now it's digital delay. All right. So that those kinds of things he changed. But the heart of the rig has not changed since day one, which he got from Rory Gallagher. It's a range, the, t the tone with the range master uh, 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 treble booster into the AC30. Now, what Brian obviously has learned over the decades and decades of work is that the AC30s blow up. He was always they were always blowing up, catching on fire because he he took them to the to the limit, right? So he has them rewired by hand. All the solder joints, the motherboard is totally rewired by hand. The EQ section is fully bypassed, so there's no EQ. It's just volume knob, and that's the Brian May sound. He he is this most simplest man you could ever meet. You'd never know it. I I, I can't 
say it enough, Brian May, the astrophysicist, is the most simplest guy on the planet. You get a guitar into the into the treble booster, into the end. You know, and that's it. That's his sound. You know, and that's the same sound that we used in the We Were Rocky musical. You know, we had the AC30 and the treble booster right there in in an ISO box. We had the ISO boxes like six by six by four. It was a huge box. And I had an AC30 in there cranked, you know, and it had the treble booster. And that, that's how we did the show, too. You had know? you ever heard of the, play? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Step on you. Play a different guitar, like, see, like yours and your pedal, like that's not his setup. And I, and I ask this because, like, you know, like I've had people say, I yeah. picked up Hale's guitar, like, would it be like a new door? I've heard a bunch of guitar players. They said, you know, I picked up Eddie's guitar and I played it. And he was just playing it sound like Eddie. He was, I picked it up. It was Eddie's guitar. Sounded nothing like Eddie. Eddie picked up my guitar. Yeah. It wasn't rigged yeah. for him. It sounded like Eddie. Brian, That's I right. imagine it the same way. Did he pick up like a different yeah, guitar? Yeah, exactly. No, there's no question. I mean, look, look at a crazy little thing called Love. He uses uh, Roger's telly on that solo. Okay. You know, there you go. Uh, I mean, obviously I've heard Brian play through my rig, you know. Which is always that's, awesome to hear. I got to imagine that's be crazy to hear that because I mean that's your rig. Yeah, sounds like Brian <laughs> May, you know, you know, and I, I play through Brian's rig. You know, I do the best I can to sound like Brian because he he taught me how to do it. Right. But at the end of the day, there's still there's incredible nuances there that yeah. I'll never be able to capture. That's what I'll really I'll, I'll never be able to capture this. You know, even though he's trained me, even though he's trained me so hard, you know, there's things that are that are just magic that you can't explain, and and Brian is full of it. You know, he's full of magic. That is crazy. So I, oh, this is a question I'm going to end you on. So with all these people you've known, you've worked with, like people you grew up loving and listening to and then working with them as, as a peer, have you thought about maybe doing like a, like a solo album, like a collaboration, like say, hey, maybe I could do a song with Brian. Maybe I could do a song with, you know, some of the guys from Anthrax are playing. Like do like an album with a lot of the people you've worked with over the years of, of you, whether it's singing and vocal guitar with a band or just doing instrumental. Has that ever kind of a, been a process of yours or a thought? I'm in the middle of it right now. Thank you so much for asking that. So oh, okay. here's what happened. Uh, about this time last year, I uh, my my very dear friend of mine who passed away in August, uh, Bernie Marsden. Oh. Uh, he started he started White Snake with David Coverdale, mm -hmm. and uh, I've known I've known Bernie since 1987. Uh, he took me under his wing and I, uh, he invited me out to his home in, in England and we worked together, uh, wrote some cool stuff together. I was a kid at that time. Okay. So let's go back now. Uh, a year ago, I had this idea, you know what I, I you know, uh, Caleb is a huge white snake fan mm -hmm. and, uh, you know what, I would love to, to write a record like a white snake, deep purple record, you know, something that Caleb and I both love. So I, I reached out to Bernie. And asked him if he wanted to do some songwriting. He said, absolutely. So we set it up. Got out there last May. Yeah. Right before our UK tour started. Uh, Caleb and I went out there early, a week early before the UK tour started. And we, uh, you know, uh, set ourselves up in, in Buckinghamshire, which is where Bernie lived. And we went to Bernie's house, you know, a few days in that week. And we, we wrote a handful of songs together, the three of us. And I'm currently arranging those songs back at home now. The plan was to go back to England this past November, but we lost Bernie. I couldn't do it. Right. So we have a handful of songs that we are currently arranging 
And the hope is to get this out by summer. So uh, this will be the solo record that you're talking about. But it's right. it's more of now. It now it's turned into a tribute of, with Bernie Marsden. Right. And um, I'm going to obviously I'm going to invite Brian on it, obviously. And I have a couple other people who are really close to Bernie, some incredible guitar players that I'm not going to mention right now, because obviously I, I want to see people being willing, right. willing to, to do it. You know, if they can right. give a solo yeah. here or there. And, uh, but that, that's what I'm working on th at this very moment. That's exciting. You know, Bernie yeah. was yeah. such an, yeah, Bernie was such an incredible influence on me, an incredible guitar player. Songwriter uh, too. One, one of the blues greats. Oh, uh, just, what's that? He was a great songwriter. I mean, he was that's what oh, great yeah, songwriter. Incredible. incredible. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. You know, that's what I thought of. You know, when you think Bernie, I thought great guitar player slash great songwriter. I mean, that's just, you know, who he was. So, you know, oh, he knew he was, he, he know, showed he, me so much. He taught me so much as a kid. I was I was, you know, 20 years old when I was hanging with him, you know? And uh man, he he just taught me so much about vibrato, you know, just hand tone, you know, and then and then moving you know, from there and developing all that. And then, you know, meeting Brian May and going really deep on vibrato, you know, and Brian's approach to vibrato was so, so unique. I remember talking to Joe Bonamassa about this. Yeah. I remember sitting down, uh, there's a producer, Kevin Shirley. I'm sure you know who this name is, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Kevin Shirley. I, I a, a, yeah. So Kevin's a very dear friend of mine. He's a mentor of mine too, you know, uh, I admire him very much. I was very fortunate to be on a record with him. He invited me in. Yeah. And uh, when he was in Vegas, I, I used to live in Las Vegas. So when uh, Kevin was out there doing a, a record with Joe Bonamassi, he invited me down to the studio. So, of course, I jumped at that and went down. And then we had dinner that night. Yeah. And I remember sitting down at dinner with Joe, who was, who was incredibly, incredibly approachable, a beautiful human being. Obviously, very intelligent and uh, just a pleasure to be around, as is Kevin. And uh, I, I just go to, I just said, "Hey, Joe." I just, I remember saying, "Joe." I go, "Vibrato," like that. He goes, "Okay," and I go, "In or up?" He goes, "Definitely up." I went, "Cool," because some players go in, they push yeah. through the neck, like Brian. Brian imagines a, a small spring in the in the in the in the fretboard. He pushes into the neck as he goes up, right? He's pushing in. So says so, so Bonamassa's right, right to God. <laughs> wow, you know what I mean? I had the honor to actually study with uh Yuli Roth. Um, this is, is amazing. Uh he's another one, you know. Please. Oh, oh my god. So uh, I'm in Berlin, Germany. Yeah, I'm in Ber Berlin, Germany. We we had mutual friends. Uh so I was texting with him. We had uh, some equipment uh, questions that we had to we had to talk to each other. It just worked this way. I I can't get into detail about it because I forget. But anyways, I'm texting with with Yuli Roth, and I get to Germany finally, and I'm in Berlin, and I invite him down to the show, and he came, and now he and I are in a in a, a dressing room together, and uh, he's playing Ships of Karen in front of me. I'm sorry, Sails of Karen. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. Ships of Karen. What the hell am I talking about? Sails of Karen. Excuse me. And then we get into everything. And uh, what I'm getting at is he was the first guy I heard tell me about seeing color when you bend and when you shake. So Yuli, he would say to me, you know, in his very hard German accent, 
Don't use your ear. See color when you bend. So when it, when he's shaking those notes, his his intonation is so perfect, right? The guy the guy is so beautiful in his playing. All he sees are colors. He sees different hues, like different reds going into oranges, depending upon pitch. And that's where he moves. You know, he's never looking at his neck. He's just seeing things. Incredible. I get that. I mean, I, um, I've had him on and yeah. I've heard him talk. And because he, he, but he looks oh, at cool. everything on a very different level. Yeah. Well, it's him. It was him yeah. and Brian. So I just got one more to my collector set. Wow. But, but he, he, wow. He, um, yeah. Um, he, but he is such a man that I just think he sees things on a level that's just so high up in you know, the vibration. Like it's so different. So it totally makes sense yeah. that everything he sees like that. I mean, it was such a great conversation and such a different conversation oh, with him. You know what? I, I have to look back at this. I was unaware of that, Sean. So forgive me. I'm going to look back at that when, when, when we're done here now. Yeah. Now the thing about Yuli too, again, he's a very spiritual guy, which is why I, I yep. resonate towards him as well. You know, and, and, and Brian is really funny because he's incredibly spiritual, but he's also a scientist. It doesn't really make sense. Uh, he's the most spiritual scientist you could ever meet. <laughs> it's funny, you know? Yeah. He is but yeah, funny. so I remember I, I, I was actually, I used to roadie for Michael Shanker too. Mm -hmm. And and uh, I remember talking to Michael. This is like 1992. I remember talking to Michael a lot. You know, I was always infatuated by him, you know, his vibrato. I remember asking him who, who was the guitar player he was most scared of. And he'd say, Yuli Roth. He's the only guy that he ever thought of was like, like incredible to him. And that's a lot coming from Shanker, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, a, he's a very confident guy too. Yeah. So, I mean, he's not gonna, Woo! he's not gonna flinch for anything. Yeah. I, really man, I, I had the best time. I had the best time roading. Yeah. The, the rig yeah. we built for him was so great. The rig we had, I, well, I, you know, I'm very, I'm so, I'm so grateful. Obviously I played the red special. And I, I played the 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 white and black V VV. You know, I used to tune it yep. every night and hand it to him. You know, and that that rig was really simple. It was uh, uh, I got some funny. I have some funny Michael Shanker stories. Uh, I remember the first day we're at production rehearsals in Tampa, and he comes in. I'm, I already, I had the rig in front of me. It's already wired up, and he comes in. I and uh. I just hear behind me, he goes, you must be Paul in his German accent. I can't do it. I turn around, it's Michael Shanker. I'm like, wow, this is so cool. I'm like, wow, this is, you know, like, man, Michael Shanker. Like, wow. You know, and and at this point, I mean, I'm I'm pretty versed, you know, as a tech. I mean, it's 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 kind of hard to make me feel starstruck, you know, because I've, right. I've met a lot of people at this point. And it's Michael Shanker. And he had this, he had this tote bag. Full of 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 Wawa pedals, and he goes, "Okay, we're going through these." And that's the first thing we did. He comes, we're going to stage, and we he puts a bag down, and it's just you know, it's like twelve Wawa pedals. Like, okay, so I run a cable out, and he goes through the walls. We turn them upside down, and I open them up. And we had the dial. He goes, "Now spin it." Now he'd play, and he's ripping, you know. And he goes, "Stop!" You know, whenever I hit a certain point, stop. He'd yell. I go, "Okay," and we'd lock, you know. Because he'd, he'd engage the wah right. to that That's point, that really sweet tone area. And and so that was the only thing in the signal path in front of the guitar, uh, besides a wireless. So he had a wireless going into the wah pedal, um, you know, and then to the amp. And the amp was just a, uh, was a Marshall uh, solid state. 
South State Amp. And uh and they sounded great. And then that broke into a uh a uh, TC twenty two ninety delay, which then went into two Marshall super lead heads that we just used the power section of. So the the um the Marshall solid state amp was the preamp to preamp out into the delay to knock it to stereo into two returns of the Marshall uh, late seventies or early eighty amps for power. Okay. And, and that was the rig. Yeah. And uh, he was, uh, he would come down early. You know, here's another guy who his work ethic, you know, it was incredible. I'd imagine he's still doing this today. I'd imagine. Right. He would come down early to sound check. Well, I'm sorry. Soundcheck would be at four o'clock, but he'd be there at one. And he'd come in, and I'd have his I'd have his Pellegrino water ready for him, a large Pellegrino on 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 the rack. And I'd have the V tuned a half step up. So it was it was tuned to F. Restrung and tuned to F. And he would come in, you know, hey, I give him the guitar. He had a, a rock man on a belt. He had a like a, a, a thick belt around his waist, and he had a rock man. And he had these uh, portable little like speakers that he that he on a that he would hang around his neck right here that plug into the Rockman. And he would walk around the venue and walk around the parking lot, just walk around and play and play and play until sound check. At sound check, I would uh, I would knock the, the guitar down to E, right? And then yeah. after sound check, I'd knock it back up to knock it back up to F, and he would take it to the dressing room and he would play until showtime. Wow. No, but I, I'm okay. I'm, I'm exaggerating. About about 45 minutes before showtime, I'd go back and grab the guitar so it would right. settle in. Back, I'd knock it back to E. But that's how that's how Michael Shanker would warm up. He tuned the guitar to F, and he'd play all day. You know, and uh, it, it was mind blowing to watch him play up close. You know, it's beautiful. Just so, it's so much passion in every note. You know, even when he's just sitting in a chair just warming up you know he is the ultimate the ultimate uh focus i think so yeah i actually the more i talk to more questions i get i'm gonna have to put a pin in it and we'll have to we'll have to talk again in 24 because uh <laughs> sure, it's sure. been a lot of fun because i just keep thinking about questions sure. but um yeah well i'll reach out to you again and um and yeah, um, sure. we'll talk some more i'll share this with you also i, I want yeah, to you know it's been great. But, but also, I mean, you know, and also I, I used to roadie, uh, I roadie for Kerry King with Slayer on Seasons in the Abyss tour. See, I mean, and um, what's that? I said, see, we, I go out for days talking to you. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so now I want, I wanted to talk about this because now here you have, this is really cool. And and I, I, I also, I helped Dave, Dave Mustaine out too, you know, checking for him on some situations where he got in trouble where a tech had to leave. Yeah. Uh, you know, and okay, uh, before I go there, but you know, working with Kerry King and working with Jeff Hanneman that close was mind blowing too, because you know, it was the West Coast thing, as opposed to as opposed to say Scott Ian mm -hmm. was very East Coast, is a New York vibe. Kerry and Jeff were very LA. It's a different thing, different sound, and and their approach to thrash metal was very different. It was very, yeah. uh, even their sound was very spiked. Like there was a, uh, Carrie and Jeff like pushed like 800 Hertz in front of their amp. I mean, crushed it. You know, so you had like a, 
like a frown EQ in front of their amp, right? Where Scott Ian didn't have that. Scott had a TC line booster that would take away bass, which would kind of enhance the mid-range, but Scott never pushed mid-range. Then you had James Hetfield who would scoop out the mid-range, right? And then you had Dimebag who would go even further away. Like Dimebag would scoop out 1.8. This is this is a trade secret for all you guitar players out there who are getting in production. You go to your rig, scoop out 1.8 really hard. You get that really nasty thrash mid-range scoop up, Pantera kind of vibe. You want to push 1K800 in front of the amp, you get uh, Kerry King, Jeff Hanneman, Gary Holt, another very, very, very important guitar player in thrash metal. Yeah. Um, who's just as important as Dave Mustaine, you know, and James Hetfield, Gary Holt, who would push mid-range in front of the amp too, you know. James Hetfield would, wouldn't do that. James would, would knock out, you know, 750, you know. This, yeah. yeah, a lot to talk about. It was fun. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for being on the show. I, I love him. Awesome. I love him. Uh, I'll have you come back. Yeah, thanks. And we'll do this again. It's been super fun. A lot. A yeah. lot. I learned a lot today. Thank thanks, you. man. Right on, Sean.